All right, great. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, thanks to the organizers for letting me give this talk. And I guess I'll be closing the session by kind of depressing everyone, talking about the financial realities of care. Um, maybe I should have gone before Marla so she could have talked about alcohol and the marijuana afterwards. But um, a quick disclosure, because we're talking about cost of care, we're going to be talking about cost of medications. I am going to use some trade medication names, which we typically don't do. But when we're talking about cost of medications, it's necessary. So what I want to do is really look at the financial reality from a few different perspectives, because I think there are multiple perspectives to this, but they are all uh, kind of interrelated. So from the societal perspective, what is the cost of uh, health care all told? We're going to look at just national trends, national cost insurance rate, uh, trends. Uh, we'll look at it from the perspective of the payers, uh, both from the, where they really make it difficult, but also where they are struggling as well. Um, and of course, we're going to be looking at it very much from not just just the cost of the, uh, the reality of the patient, but also the parents and families who, um, who are also affected by this. So this is a uh, slide that David Rubin has shown and uh, let me uh, borrow. This is a, a receipt or, or that was given to him from one of his patients, which you could see the charges for nuzdokinumab uh, medication, some imaging studies, et cetera, with a total uh, charges of $102,000. So that's what society sees, right? Um, when you look at what's circled in blue, that's, that's what the payer cares about. That's what they've negotiated, what they're paying. But then when you look at what's circled in red, that's what the patient or the family is going to be most interested in, which is how much do I owe? And when we talk about this, what medicine costs society and what medicine costs an individual are very, very different, and we have to keep that in mind. So I want to begin by talking about not IBD, but national trends in medical care expenditures. So as you can see, uh, national health expenditures as a share of gross domestic product over the last 30 years has just been increasing up to 17.9 percent in uh, 2016. Uh, and if you look at projections of where this is going, it appears that it is going to continue to increase beyond over the next five years, with an estimate that if we wanted to keep it flat at the 17.3 percent that it was at the beginning of the decade, that would require $532 billion in savings in order to keep this flat. So uh, keep that in mind, uh, a national issue, not just related to IBD. And of course, everyone has been familiar with this, but looking at the United States versus other wealthy countries, how much do we spend per capita for healthcare, you can see we far exceed uh, countries that are considered comparably wealthy, and we're about double the average for these other countries without any data that shows that we're improving outcomes with this increased spending. Um, Looking at trends in insurance coverage, first we'll look at some adult data. And this is nice. This is showing uninsured rates for uh, patients that are 18 and older. So this is adult data to begin with. And as you can see, starting mostly in 2013, there was a, a nice decrease in the uh, percentage of uninsured adults. This uh, has a lot to do with the Affordable Care Act, better access to both uh, private but also uh, public um, insurance. Uh, so when you look at sources of insurance, again, for adults, you can see about those 70% uh, have private insurance, and there's been a little bit of a flip where more patients have public insurance, or more people, excuse me, have patients have public insurance, while less are uninsured. But if you look at these numbers, it's actually a bit different in pediatrics. So there are fewer who have private insurance. There are many fewer who are uninsured, thankfully but a much higher percentage who are having public insurance. So that's in many ways good that we have less in, uh, uninsured patients, but when you think about that from the perspective of the institutions who are caring for them, what's the difference in the reimbursement rate 
for the children's hospitals who are taking care of a high percentage of patients who have Medicaid and less who have private insurance. So what does that mean for our ability to uh, provide the care we want to provide? So before we talk about the actual costs, just want to show you a little bit data on how financially secure patients feel. So the Crohn's Colitis Foundation did a survey a few years ago. It was sent electronically to all of their members. It was also uh, made available on social media. The respondents here were adults, and they had over 3,500 responses regarding how, how uh, confident do you feel in your health care access and your ability to control your costs. So uh, unfortunately, the data doesn't seem to be showing very well on the, uh, on the chart. But um, 96% of patients had insurance coverage. Yet two-thirds still felt worried that if they fell ill, they would not be able to control costs. Also, 26% noted that they had worse insurance or no insurance coverage compared to a year ago. So if I were to become sick, I don't feel confident that I could actually handle the costs, and my insurance seems to be getting worse. Um, the next question was, what did you do when your provider recommended therapy that was denied? This is something that happens quite frequently. And, you know, thankfully, a good percentage of them, they did insurance appeals. The physicians helped with the insurance appeals. But look at some of these numbers. Almost a quarter ended up choosing a different therapy than the one that was recommended by their provider. Almost a quarter responded to this by going without any therapy. All right. This is how people are responding when their insurance company does not provide the coverage for the drug. And sometimes the doctor's office didn't even know about this. Others did find patient assistance. There were some who were able to pay out of pocket. Uh, one even chose to purchase foreign medications, and I think that's probably more common than this survey uh, even really showed. In pediatrics, this was an adult uh, study or an adult survey, but in pediatrics, there are even more specific concerns. A lot of the treatments aren't approved in pediatrics, so what does that mean about the ability to get insurance approval? You know, we parents worry about the ability of their child to progress normally through pubertal development into uh, adulthood. Are they going to be insurable? Are they going to be employable? Is my child going to be healthy enough to then be able to have insurance? What's going to happen when they're no longer on my insurance? These are real pediatric-specific concerns. So now that we set the table with that, let's look at the cost of IBD care. So uh, KT Park led a really nice study. Uh, it was retrospective cohort analysis looking at claims data from 2011 to 2013. Uh, 11 U.S. health insurance plans were included in this. These are Crohn's disease patients, not just IBD. There were over 5,000 patients in this study, about uh, 10% of whom were 20 and under, which is what we considered pediatric in this study. So look at the mean paid cost per member per year for the entire cohort, $18,000 a year. But for the pediatric sample, it was over $22,000 per year. So that was significantly higher than for the overall population. So the pediatric patients seem to be more expensive than the adult patients. And not surprisingly, about a quarter of the patients accounted for 80% of the cost, with an average per member per year spending of $45,000. So in other words, showing that there is a subset of patients who are sicker or, or have, have higher costs, and that a lot of the money is being spent on that subset of patients. The amount that was spent did correlate with a number of comorbidities, and the most common comorbidity that was included in this, or was that found was this, were psychological comorbidities. We'll talk about that a little later, what the role of that is in increasing costs. When you look at the same study at the drivers of what was increasing the cost or what was causing the cost for Crohn's disease, you can see in the upper graph, which is the pediatric cohort, 48.6% of the drivers of cost were pharmaceutical. 
All right, so it used to be that inpatient costs were what drove the charges and the costs in, in pediatric IBD care. Now inpatient costs are actually much less than they are from pharmaceutical costs. And when you look at the breakdown of the pharmaceutical costs, nearly a third, not of the pharmaceutical costs, but of the total pediatric cost from these claims was anti-TNF therapy, biological therapy. So really driving up the cost in many ways. Um, of course, we would all be very happy if inpatient costs go down because we have less patients in the hospital, but something that we all have to be quite aware of. So that's looking at it from the insurance perspective. What about out-of-pocket costs in pediatric IBD? Like I said, it's not just what it costs society, what it costs insurance companies, but what are our, what are our families feeling? So this was a cross-sectional cohort analysis in California where they did an online study of the parents and guardians of uh, pediatric IBD patients. Uh, keep in mind this was published in 2015, so some of this data, when you think about how costs are rising, might even be a little bit old. There were about 150 patients who were uh, surveyed. It was a mix of uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The majority had private insurance, and the majority did not receive financial assistance for IBD care over the prior year. And as you can see, this is looking at annual family out-of-pocket expenses over half reported at least $500 per year. Over a quarter reported at least $1,000 per year. And about 5% showed over $5,000 per year. These are out-of-pocket costs. And keep in mind, this is uh, likely higher in 2018 is going to continue to go up. I uh, mentioned to a patient of mine uh, two weeks ago that I was giving this talk, and, and the mother asked me to share with the audience the patients on infliximab. Their deductible two years ago was $2,000. The deductible last year was $4,000, and their deductible this year, $8,000. So that is uh, three years on the drug, how much more they seem to owe each year uh, based on deductibles. So looking at the out-of-pocket uh, costs, what was driving it, not surprisingly, when you look at the uh, multivariate logistic regression model of what clinical variables were associated with at least $500 of annual out-of-pocket costs, it was those that are associated with poorly controlled disease state. So basically having a long-term poorly uh, controlled disease state, active disease, is associated not just with higher insurance costs, but also out-of-pocket costs. Another thing that was interesting about this analysis is they broke up those who responded into a low-income group, a middle-income group, and a high-income group. And what was interesting was a significantly higher percentage of those in the middle-income group incurred costs of at least $500 than those in the low- or high-income group. So perhaps the middle-income group uh, may be more vulnerable to financial stress uh, from out-of-pocket costs. Direct costs are not the only thing we need to be looking at, though. We also need to be looking at the indirect costs and family burden of pediatric IBD. Now, this study done by Stacy Kahn looked at, actually, pediatric Crohn's disease. But in, and what they did was they did match control. So they had 200 uh, patients and families with pediatric Crohn's disease, and then non-IBD age insurance and comorbidity uh, match controls, again, from the Truven market scan um, and claims data. So when you look at annual productivity cost for caregivers of the pediatric Crohn's disease patients versus the matched controls, you can see those who had pediatric Crohn's disease, they were uh, having more annual productivity costs, um, unadjusted 5000 per year, and there was a significant difference compared to matched controls. When you looked at cumulative caregiver productivity cost, estimated $25,000 for the caregivers of children with pediatric Crohn's disease significantly higher than those with pediatric controls. When you looked at annual hours of work loss, there was a trend towards more for those with pediatric Crohn's disease, um, but not statistically significant. So what was learned from this study? I think it's really important. The caregivers of pediatric Crohn's disease patients have substantial productivity losses. These losses can impact employment, 
That can, of course, impact preference and access to health plans. That, of course, can impact medication and treatment choices and, of course, quality of life for the parent and patient. So it's all cyclical and it's all interrelated, and it's important to recognize and quantify these losses in order to understand the burden of pediatric Crohn's disease. I mentioned before the role of anxiety and depression in, in uh, increasing costs. So this was a retrospective cohort study uh, looking at a readmissions database. So this was just looking at readmissions, which obviously are a problem that drives up costs in this database, and it was pediatric IBD. They found uh, 2,733 uh, admissions, and then 22% were readmitted within three months, uh, causing what was estimated to be 11,000 excess days in the hospital with charges over $100 million. When they looked at what drove these readmissions, Male sex seemed to be one of them. There's probably not much we can do about that. Um, but the other one was anxiety or depression as a predictor of who was more likely to be readmitted after discharge with pediatric IBD. Similar study was performed in adults in that uh, cohort for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Same thing, depression, anxiety, just like in the children. Chronic pain was also a driver for increased risk of readmission. Uh, a lot of what uh, Mar uh, Marla was also talking about, narcotic use. Um, truthfully, there was not enough data in the pediatric analysis to actually analyze that as a variable. And in a third study... Um, looking at just baseline anxiety in pediatric Crohn's disease, it was associated with at least two disease relapses and greater total GI healthcare use, even after controlling for disease activity at the onset of uh, when the study was done. So once again, demonstrating depression, anxiety, drivers of costs, driver of morbidity, and uh, certainly something that we need to be looking at. So let's talk about pharmacologic costs a little bit. So... Uh, we all have prescribed five ASAs, so I think it would be interesting to look at what they really cost. So this comes from CVS stock pricing, uh, courtesy of my, my local CVS pharmacist um, who provided me this data, and it's really kind of telling. So these are your mesalamine products. I've tried to show the cost for a 30-day supply depending on your dosing. And as you can see, for oral dosing at adult doses of the five ASAs, it can run you anywhere without insurance from $700 to, for balsalazide, $3,200 for a month supply of five ASA. We all try to talk our patients into suppositories and enemas for their distal colitis. Do we know what they actually cost? One month supply of mesalamine enema, $4,600 per month because each enema costs $156. All right, so keep that in mind, uh, why it is so important to have insurance, why it is so important to have the ability to have these medications, and why so many of our patients come to us and say, I, I just can't afford this. Methotrexate, not terribly expensive. Uh, azathioprine, a little more so, and that's only looking, of course, at the financial cost of it, not uh, all the other potential costs of it. But what about budesonide? We all want to be steroid sparing, so we sometimes want to use budesonide for our patients. One month supply of nine milligrams daily of budesonide runs you just around $2,500 a month without insurance. These are astronomical costs and have to be kept in mind. For the biologics, so this is similar to a slide that uh, David Rubin showed where he looked in LexiComp in October 2017 and then I looked in October 2018. So keep that in mind when you look at the last column of this. So for infliximab, about $5,000 per dose. Keep in mind, this is just LexiComp dosing. This has nothing to do with all the infusion costs. That's just for the medicine. 
When you look at the adalimumab, uzdekinumab, and vitalizumab costs, which you can see on here, what I think is interesting is the difference in his slide and the difference in my slide. One year apart, there has been a 10% increase in adalimumab, an 8% increase in the cost of uzdekinumab, and a 12% increase in the lexicomp dosing of vitalizumab. These drugs are going up astronomically in rate, and something will have to be done about that. So this is another look at a Truven Market Scan uh, Commercial Claims and Encounters database. These are uh, looking at adult and pediatric patients, but specifically looking at the pediatric cohort between 2007 and 2015, the percent using biologics went from 19% in 2007 to 46% in 2015, with a change in per member per year cost for patients on biologic from 23,000 a year to 41,000 per year. And in 2015, the percent of biologics accounting for all medication costs, 95% for pediatric patients in 2015. It's almost all of the medication costs, both because the use of these has increased, but also, of course, because the cost of these have gone up so much. We also should look at this from the uh, perspective of the insurance companies. So this is Blue Cross Blue Shield, their annual report, which was actually published last month. So this is kind of interesting. The, these are looking at branded specialty drugs, which comprise 3% of the total prescriptions for their population that they cover, but 34% of the spending on Blue Cross Blue Shield patients nationally. Between 2016 and 2017, there was a 10% increase in spending on branded specialty drugs up to $27 billion per year. So really astronomical spending on specialty drugs. And this is looking at their entire population, not looking at IBD, but their entire population of healthy and diseased adults. In November 2018, the number one drug that they were spending on, Humira, number two, Remicade, and we have three drugs in the top 10 uh, with uh, Stellara also rounding out the top 10. So these are really uh, the drugs that are driving charges for Blue Cross Blue Shield, and you can see part of the reason why they are... um, uh, fighting back on the cost of these drugs. Uh, of note, they, they also published their top 30. Mesalamine and vitalizumab also made the top 30. So maybe biosimilars can help us with a little bit of this. And there has been a lot of talk at this meeting about biosimilars, maybe some, some reassuring data regarding um, efficacy and interchangeability. So this is looking at uh, what the discount would be for biosimilars in European countries. I know the average discount was about 25% uh, depending on the country, but the question is, what's the discount going to be in our country? Is it going to be 25%? Hard to say. The other question is, where's the cost savings going to go? Is it going to go to the payers? Yeah, it will. Um, most likely. Will society see cost savings? That's unclear. Will individuals see cost savings? That's, that's pretty doubtful. Um, and uh, particularly when you think about some of the companies that are providing uh, copay uh, assistance, will that go away and will it actually cost more for some individuals? Um, will it result in increased utilization of biological therapies, market growth? It might, um, but does that increase overall cost? That remains to be seen. Will there be better access to therapies? I, I think that's unclear. And will there be improved outcomes to IBD uh, if there is more access to these? I think this also remains unclear. That's the hope with these drugs, but I think a lot of this kind of remains unclear, um, but, but will have to be figured out. 
So let's talk about what resources are available to help us and to help our patients. So um, I practice at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Our primary market is Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So one thing that's kind of uh, helpful for our Pennsylvania patients is that they are, uh, even if you are insured, children in the state of Pennsylvania can qualify for secondary Medicaid. Uh, your other insurance has to be billed first, but the secondary assistance will uh, cover the costs that are not covered by the primary insurance. Parental and child assets are not considered. Parental income is not considered. So this is not like your typical uh, Medicaid insurance. You have to meet Social Security disability guidelines. I have listed the uh, Social Security disability guidelines for IBD to the right, but many of our patients do meet them, and most of our patients who apply for this are able to get it. So again, what's interesting, where we work, our New Jersey patients do not have this. Um, and I specifically see patients in New Jersey, so I can tell you, New Jersey patients have higher copays, higher deductible burdens, same practice, but just based on the state where they live. I tried really hard to find where this is available, which states in the country it is or it isn't. I actually could not find that data, but important to know if the state where you practice is one where this is uh, something that our patients could benefit from. Uh, the Crohn's Colitis Foundation has recently updated their website and really deserve a lot of credit for their new online financial resources, which you can find easily on their website. A number of great sections to help patients and to help the, the professionals. Uh, things like um, therapeutic financial aid assistance programs, understanding uh, copay card programs, scholarships, uh, really worth uh, checking out and also uh, promoting to your patients to check out. There are a number of commercial insurance copay cards. These are generally offered without looking at parental or patient income to help with the copays uh, can help as much as twelve to twenty thousand dollars a year um, and most of the uh, most of the biological therapies the companies do offer these um, and then there are patient assistance programs as well this is generally income based uh, these are programs where we may have to give uh, tax returns but for those who are having trouble with insurance coverage and need uh, assistance these, these can be available um, and then many of us, I don't know if you've, if you've experienced this, but you have to write letters of medical necessity and, and, and appeals. Has anyone had to write a letter of medical necessity? Yeah. So um, I think w one of the harder things about that is keeping up with the data, keeping your, you know, we all wrote that letter five years ago and we're still using that letter. So um, I do want to highlight that the uh, IBD committee of NASPGAN did create a number of letter of medical necessity templates, just updated them too, for calprotectin, for therapeutic drug monitoring, for biological therapies, and the Crohn's Colitis Foundation also has a number of uh, appeal letters that are on their website, and these are the URLs to get to those. These are both for families that are appealing to their insurance, but also providers, and it helps you not have to create a new letter with all the uh, recent uh, publications. Well, there's also going to be a need for advocacy, and I think we see ourselves as clinicians, as researchers, but we also have to be advocates as well. Um, and one thing we have to understand, and this is also borrowed from David Rubin, the opposing forces in insurance decisions. We, we certainly like to talk about all the ways that they're making our lives difficult, but they really do have different opposing forces that they have to consider. And, and basically, they have an obligation to provide care, and they have an obligation to be profitable. These, these are not uh, generous groups. These are not nonprofits. These are profitable organizations who have shareholders. Um, they have to try to embrace being cost-effective, but they have to look at experimental therapies. But I think one of the things that's the hardest one, and I don't think is be, a good job is being done, is looking at what's an established standard of care practice versus what are emerging evidence-based practices. So let's talk about that a little bit. So step therapy, which I think you're all familiar with, or another name of it might be fail-first therapy, that is when the 
regardless of what the clinician prescribes, lower-cost medications have to be tried prior to accessing what it is we're prescribing. This is obviously an impediment to optimal care. It's a source of stress for our patients, for their families. It's a source of stress for us as well as practitioners. Um, You can look at this survey that was done by the Crohn's Colitis Foundation. At least 40% indicated they've been subject to step therapy. Uh, 58% had to fail two or more drugs before having access to the drug that their clinician wanted them to have. Uh, 32% said uh, that their prescription was delayed over seven months. So there is a good deal of advocacy for federal and state legislation against step therapy. Here's kind of a map of which states have have done something. Luckily, my map does have Alaska uh, labeled, so it it is Alaska. Um, And uh, (laughs) so so I I never go without a map that's not labeled. I'm bad at geography, too. So, but but looking at at this, um, patient protections have been enacted in some states. There are others that are being targeted. But if you look at this map, most of the states, really nothing has happened yet. So there's actually some data regarding this recent study that uh, came out, and I think this is very interesting. 50 policies were reviewed from 125 of the largest insurance companies in the United States. And what did it show? It showed that the majority of patients where there is a policy, and many of them don't even have a policy, the majority of patients have to fail drug therapy, and treatment is not allowed uh, based on disease severity. The recent AGA guidelines certainly allow for the fact that there should be early use of biologics based on disease uh, severity. You can see for 2% in ulcerative colitis, 10% in Crohn's disease, do these drug Uh, do these insurance company plans follow the AGA guidelines? We also know that uzdekinumab has been available now for two years as an important uh, drug for for patients who who have Crohn's disease. Only 34% even have a policy that addresses uzdekinumab two years, or this was published last year, a year after it became available. So what about therapeutic drug monitoring? We're not going to get into that, but we all know that in 2017, the AGA published a technical review where they suggest reactive therapeutic drug monitoring to guide treatment changes. This was presented at DDW in 2016, published in 2017. Well, this study actually looked at what happened, same uh, same policies, same insurance companies. So this is at baseline one, three, and six months after the AGA guidelines were published. So what happened? Nothing. There is really almost no change in how many of these policies actually, uh, how many of these companies actually have a policy regarding therapeutic drug monitoring, showing once again that guidelines probably don't alter insurance company policy in a timely matter if they do at all. These are the things we have to advocate to change. Uh, some of our colleagues in adult GI and in pediatric GI are taking their advocacy to social media. I think David Rubin does a, does a really nice job about this, often uh, highlighting some of the problems he's had uh, with insurance companies for his patients. He uses uh, hashtag fight with me. Uh, some of these, I mean, the, the one at the bottom, which is just classic. Uh, UHC gives a four, 14 days for a peer-to-peer discussion after denial. Patient received her denial lever at, letter after the 14 days had already expired. These are the things that are happening. He's really taking to social media as others have and hoping that it makes an impact. And maybe there's legal recourse as well. I don't know how many saw a $25.5 million settlement uh, last month against Aetna after a um after a uh, oncologic treatment was uh, determined to be experimental, even though most would say it was not experimental and it could have helped, and uh, that, and then of course the case of the Aetna uh, medical director who on the stand admitted that he never looked at records. And now a bunch of states are, um, are investigating that. 
It's also going to be up to us to have clinical practice and system changes. And, um, you know, this was a really nice article looking at value-based care. It's EPUB, the head of press. It's going to be an IBD in the next few months. But this is kind of looking at the concept of the medical home and a value-based care model where the gastroenterologists, the primary care physicians, community GI providers, again, this is adult-based, um, psychologists, so, psychosocial, uh, social workers, um, all kind of come together with some goals of creating robust evidence-based process, um, risk-sharing agreements with the actual insurance companies uh, and other stakeholders, uh, using common consent forms and infrastructure, more meaningful use of electronic medical records, uh, looking at quality metrics, and number five, maybe as important as any, improving access to behavioral health and psychosocial support for IBD patients all throughout the health system. But the only question is, I think we all agree this is important, but this costs a lot to do. Even the big centers, which have many resources to provide all of this for our patients is very difficult, and we're going to have to figure out how to afford this and then determine if this can increase value. So in summary, the cost of care is rising, and it's actually unsustainably rising. Um, this is affecting patients and their parents, and it's uh, not just direct costs, which are easy to quantify, but indirect costs, which of course are very difficult to quantify, but equally as important. Payers, clinicians, and institutions are going to have to collaborate to address in an evidence-based manner that supports best practices. And keep in mind, the most important financial considerations of pediatric IBD aren't going to be discovered until adulthood. Uh, what are the clinical consequences of chronic debilitating inflammatory disease at a young age? Obviously, we want to treat aggressively and early, um, but these are children who need to grow up to become adults. They need to be insurable, and we need to make sure they have the, the optimized psychological health and social functioning in order for that to happen. I want to acknowledge uh, many people who uh, contributed to this talk, including some of the financial people at our hospital who provided a lot of the information. Thank you.